This morning, we are privileged to have a keynote address by Dr. John Duke Anthony. I can think of no one more qualified and capable of setting us on our course this week than John Duke. He is an extraordinary scholar, observer, and student of the Middle East region, its peoples, its history, and its cultures. You've seen his bio, so just let me add that in addition to the teaching and writing and government advising, he is founder and president of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations, an enormously important nonprofit organization here in Washington that has enabled thousands of students to learn about and travel to the region and has taken thousands of professors and teachers to the countries of the Middle East. The Council operates the Model Arab League, a program at the university and high school level that works across the United States and introduces students not only to the Middle East, but provides leadership, analysis, and public speaking skills to thousands of students each year. The Council also holds an annual policymakers conference here in Washington that attracts government leaders, military officers, corporate officials, academics, and analysts to discuss the leading issues of U.S.-Arab relations. That's in addition to what you have in the bio there. John received a B.A. from the Virginia Military Academy, a Master's in Science and Foreign Service from Georgetown Universities, and a Ph.D. in International Relations and Middle East studies from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. We are fortunate to have him here with us, and it is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. John Duke Anthony. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and to have been invited by Heidi Shoup. There are many uh, professional people in this city uh, who are multitasked and, and multi-skilled. Uh, some specialize in projects, some specialize in programs, some specialize in events, some specialize in activities. This is one who specializes in all four there. And so she's, she's a fixture of the Washington landscape on matters pertaining to uh, America's role in the world beyond our shores, international relations generally, and the foreign policies uh, of the United States. I've been asked to address the implications of the so-called Arab Spring, even though we're now several days into the summer, and before we know it, uh, we'll be into the autumn, and much of it, I believe, will still be with us, uh, and the changing nature of America's interest and involvement in the region, uh, and what this has to do with uh, American policies. Uh, will all of them remain the same? Some of them remain the same? None of them remain the same? And uh, if uh, many or several do not remain the same, which ones are those? And why? And when? Uh, because the uh, Congress will have its own input and comment on all of this. Uh, in terms of a few prefatory uh, thematic uh, remarks, uh, no matter how newsworthy all of what has been occurring in the last uh, six months has been and will continue to be, uh, this region is hardly marginal. Uh, it's not ever been a fad for humanity. Uh, we're not at the edges of uh, the globe or the earth, uh, but for those who are Westerners, and I'm making a giant leap of faith and assumption that most, if not all, in this room are of uh, Western ancestry or origins, or if you were not, then you have 
have become so by assimilation, by immigration, by naturalization, and by the um, responsibilities and opportunities and privilege that go with uh, citizenship. Uh, so if that opening frame of reference is broadly uh, correct, uh, what can we say that will endure and continue to endear uh, beyond the Arab Spring, uh, beyond the, the issues of the uh, moment? I would suggest they consist of, include uh, the following at least, that this is the part of the globe that was the cradle of culture as Westerners know it. Uh, the crucible of civilization as Westerners know it and have derived immense benefit from it. It is also the intersection of three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and has ever been thus. It is the source of sunshine on the classical world. It is the anvil of antiquity. And in terms of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, on certain occasions, seemingly the traffic jam of the devout. <laughs> With regard to um, America's uh, interest in the region, uh, I would like to offer a categorization of them or a prioritization of them. Uh, when I began my studies in this field, uh, I learned many things that were difficult to understand, uh, but one of them that perplexed me was the frequent use of the word interest. And uh, people would use it oftentimes with some emotional force and reasoned uh, argument and spirited debate. Uh, look stupid, we wouldn't do that, it's not in our interest. Or why would we do that? Uh, it used to be our interest, but no longer is in our interest. And then people would oftentimes place an adjective in front of it. I find adjectives and adverbs are, are rather weak words uh, because they tend to be descriptive and things that are descriptive tends to, tend to be emotional. Uh, that nouns and verbs are the stronger words and the lesser challenged or the subjective uh, of, of the two. Uh, but also people use the phrase vital interest for some, but not all. Uh, a gradation law would be very important or immensely important interest. And then there would be a category that would be important interest and a category of major interest. And then one that has probably had more ink uh, spilled in terms of writing about it and more uh, tempers uh, uh, thrown in terms of arguing about it that um, I would f refer to as psychologically indulgible, but put under the microscope uh, politically expendable. Uh, that will need some explaining. But I put those pretty much down on the list, even though for lots of people in terms of their values, their interests, their principles, their morality, their ethical norms, uh, it's at the top. And uh, none should be higher. So some of what I have to say will be controversial. And what is the frame of reference for what I have to say? And trying to get on top of this issue, not that I am on top of it, but trying to understand it better and be more informed and have uh, uh, thoughtful comments and analyses uh, about interest, I thought, why don't I ask the people who are paid all day long by the American taxpayers 
to pursue and protect America's interest. And this way, um, I'll go beyond the books, beyond the library, beyond what uh, seems to be established thought, and uh, see what the practitioners, the people who deal with reality, and are trying to achieve various uh, objectives, have to say about our interest. And what I learned uh, both shocked me in some ways and astounded me, uh, but certainly informed me uh, differently than I think I would have been informed had I read out, relied only on books or lectures or briefings or even films or speeches or the pundits on uh, talk shows or even congressional hearings. Uh, that they can be even more deceit, deceitful and deceiving uh, than, uh, than the other uh, main, uh, course, mainstream dialogue. And so in asking um, older people from me who were retired from government and who'd served in uh, Washington and the executive branch and the legislative branch and elsewhere, uh, I asked them how I might proceed. And they said, well, you want to have at least several from the Congress uh, on both sides of the aisle, and particularly those on Armed Services Committee, uh, as Committees on Foreign Relations, and to a degree those on Banking and Finance. Uh, you would also uh, want to be sure to uh, find relevant ones pertaining to the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world in the Departments of State, the Department of Treasury, the Department of uh, Commerce, uh, these three. And then if you can find a spooky person, or two, or three, uh, you would be well advised to um, uh, see if one of those would chat with you, including those in the National Security Council. Uh, so I've been doing this now since I started doing it on a, every four years in 1968. Um, and I have done it every four years just to update myself to see if something has changed and if so, uh, why and how and what are the implications of, of that. Uh, a note of uh, humility uh, at the outset is that this is my 48th year of trying to understand this region and my country's uh, relationship, engagement, involvement uh, with it. Uh, from the beginning till now, it's been very much like being enrolled in a university from which there's no possible graduation. <coughs> Only on the best of days, like maybe some of your students, uh, do I get a murky and complete and uh, have to go to summer school a lot. Uh, in this um, lead-in, the, I'll, I'll state them all so that you have a feeling of where we're going, and then I'll come back and sort of peel them off uh, like the layers of an onion. Uh, the highest category of, of interest uh, that uh, taxpayers' dollars are put to in uh, this part of the world has to do with a set of strategic interest. Now, I heard the word strategic as long as I'd heard the word interest, but I'd never heard anyone uh, define it or it was used in so many different contexts that um, I wasn't necessarily uh, the more informed by realizing how many different ways uh, it has been used. But oftentimes the strategic interests are the most basic ones. They're the most enduring ones. They're the most important ones. They're the most all-encompassing ones. And for those kinds of reasons, because they seem to be a no-brainer or simple and straightforward, uh, people either don't take them into consideration or they look beyond them uh, to other interests uh, about which they know far less. But what are we talking about here in terms of America's strategic interest in this region? I would submit we're talking about the following. Uh, we're talking about the objective of ending wars that exist 
preventing wars that right now are shouting matches or uh, threats and intimidations and uh, cross-border forays with people carrying guns, weapons, explosives, or they themselves being agents, saboteurs, subversives, terrorists, extremists, militants, fanatics, that are hell-bent on destruction uh, that uh, could easily, quickly, directly lead to a war. Uh, so that's in that category. Alongside it, oftentimes opposed to it, are the issues of peace, uh, to prolong the peace, to perpetuate the peace, uh, to bring about peace uh, that is proven to be elusive, uh, to do so in order to resolve an issue, to take it off the table uh, so that people can better plan, can better predict, can better anticipate, can better manage, uh, can better proceed. Uh, but there are quite a few in this region that have not been resolved uh, that are longstanding. Well, if you cannot resolve them or they haven't been resolved or you think they'd be difficult, if not impossible to resolve, uh, do you give up and go to the next um, set of interests or things that are more obtainable? I would argue not necessarily uh, because there is a gradation below resolution uh, that would also be interpreted as progress or success of a degree and that would be amelioration, an abatement of the most serious consequences, implications, and ramifications, the results of, of uh, something that's not been resolved. And then if uh, amelioration was uh, elusive, uh, throw in the towel there, I would argue again, no. Things that are not resolvable at the moment or capable of being ameliorated at the moment uh, perhaps can be rendered more manageable at the moment so that the excesses, uh, the devastation, uh, the length, the nature, the diversity, the multifaceted aspect of the horrors that come from something that can't be resolved and perhaps could be managed better and less wasteful uh, or more likely uh, to enter earlier rather than later into a status or stage where it could be ameliorated. And then if things are not manageable, helter-skelter, why is that? Is this because we're so ill-informed? Is this because we're ignorant? Is this because we're arrogant? Is this because we're antagonizing our allies, frustrating our friends, and provoking our partners? Um, if the answer to any of those is yes, uh, then perhaps uh, we need to gin up the public diplomacy campaign or to expand information and insight, or to enhance knowledge and understanding. Um, and I would vote for all of the latter, uh, regardless of the status of a particular issue, challenge, question, or problem. What are the empirical, practical, uh, known issues uh, that are closely related to the likelihood of triggering a war? or enhancing peace. In this region, there are several. We have not used the word vital interest except in the last 40 years. We're new to this concept. Something that's vital means it can make or break you, kill you or prolong your life, or it's essential uh, to your well-being, to your 
personal safety, to public safety, to your uh, ability to be externally safe and defended so that your neighbors don't come after what you've got in terms of your blessings, your resources, and your assets. And in this country, because we are indeed blessed, of the 212 countries on the planet, I know of no more than six uh, that are remotely blessed to the degree and extent that we are in terms of our mountains and valleys, uh, rivers and streams, green things, growing things, renewable things, vast open empty spaces yet to be populated and lived in and, and, and rendered uh, productive. There are only about five others uh, that have that kind of a descriptive uh, uh, potential. So the aspects that we have come to refer to as vital are pretty much those that the British and the French, and to a degree the Italians, and the Dutch and the Portuguese before us, in their day, their time, regarded as vital. What are these? Some did not exist then, some are newer. Uh, but we know that the Suez Canal is one. The Israelis have twice attacked Egypt and the canal was shut. And the first time they did it was in 1956. And if it's true that uh, success in politics often 90% of the time turns on timing, it was not an accident or coincidence that the Israelis chose to do this during the week of the national congressional and presidential election in the United States in the autumn of 1956. And it was also when the French and the British teamed up with the Israelis to do that. And why did they do that? Anyone know who was the charismatic, spellbinding orator, leader of Egypt? Yes. Nasser. Gamal Abdel Nasser the first Arab to ever rule Egypt, okay? And he was welcomed and a beacon from Morocco to Muscat, Baghdad to Berber, Algiers to Aden with Alexandria and Aleppo in between. Uh, there was no one like him <coughs> before him, although he, like the rest of us, stood and built on the shoulders of those who preceded him. In terms of the French, he was beckoning all of the guerrillas, the militants, the insurgents, the pro-independence people of Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria to rise up and gain their national sovereignty, their political independence, their territorial integrity, like the Egyptians had just shown how one could do it. So both the French and the Israelis were after him and the Egyptians uh, because he had expropriated the Suez Canal Company. And if Herodotus was correct, the Greek historian that Egypt has ever been the gift of the Nile, many of the countries along the Red Sea have in modern day times been the gift of the Suez Canal. And those in East Africa and the Northwest Quadrant of the Indian Ocean as well. Uh, I used to think that the canal was owned all by the British and the French. It largely was, but 88%, 12% of it was owned by Americans. And I point that out because we froze all of Egypt's funds in the United States 
something that we have done quite a few times since then in the case of Iran, in the case of Libya, and in the case of Pakistan, and in the case of North Korea, as well as Albania, as well as North Vietnam. And I point this out because most Americans here read, think that the U.S. economy is the safest and strongest and most secure in the world, where one can trust the institutions in which one places the denominations of one's material uh, wealth. Uh, so that was the first occasion in which we did that, and we've done it half a dozen times since. And it's not the healthiest of things that non-Americans know that more than Americans know that. A second one we saw in the autumn of 1990 in two forms. When uh, Saddam Hussein's forces in Iraq rolled across the border of Kuwait, invaded and occupied it for seven uh, months. At one time, in order to try to confuse and confound the efforts to uh, restore safety, security, freedom, national sovereignty, political independence, and territorial integrity to the Kuwaiti people, uh, the Iraqi government opened the floodgates uh, of uh, Kuwait's oil wells and let them gush unimpeded into the Gulf, the Persian Gulf there, uh, as a means to deter, to intimidate uh, those would-be liberators from coming any closer. And when that didn't work, at the very last month of Iraq's invasion, in January and early February of 1991, uh, Iraq set fire to all 732 of Kuwait's oil wells. Okay. I remember being on the first uh, plane into Kuwait after it was liberated, and for months afterwards, uh, one could not see one's hand in front of the face here. <coughs> That's how dark the sky was from the billowing smoke from 732 wells. There used to be a famous American by the name of Red Adair, who um, his old uh, livelihood was putting out oil fires, but not that there were that many of them, so oftentimes he was out of work. But when this happened, he said it will take seven years minimum to put them out, and uh, they were raging. I've never been near that kind of heat in my life before and never want to return to same. And yet it became sort of like a Manhattan project at the latter part of World War II a race to, to prove uh, the consensus wrong. And so the Japanese got involved to trying to put them out, the Iranians got involved, two firms from Canada got involved, a couple of other American firms got involved. But what snuffed them out was a Hungarian airplane pilot. And he said, I used to drive these illusions, these, uh, he flew these illusions, the Soviet planes, and um, I remember the gust of power uh, that would burst when I would turn on the ignition there. And he said, so if someone could get me scaffolds and get me an old engine, we'll put them up on the scaffolds and we'll tilt them down and I'll turn the ignition on. And with a split second, each one of them went out. And so they all were, were put out in, in less than, uh, than six months. And uh, Red Adair has never been heard of again. Uh, so, but that's one. 
as indeed when Iraq did what it did on August the 2nd, and we're coming up to an anniversary of that next month and a week, uh, the United Nations was then decisive and uh, embargoed not only all of Iraq's oil, but also all of Kuwait's oil, because Iraq was uh, intent on stealing it. And that was four and a half million barrels a day of oil, and the price started going skyward. Uh, then was when the Arab countries came together within 24 hours in Cairo in the League of Arab States and stood with Kuwait, not all of them. Of the 21 at the 22 at the time, 12 did, nine did not, and one abstained. Uh, you may re remember that there was something called the Camp David Accords, still is, between Egypt and Israel. And when Egypt signed that separate peace treaty with Israel, uh, while there were still a million and a half Arab Christians and Muslims under illegal Israeli occupation, uh, the Arab League voted to expel Egypt from the League of Arab States. And actually it was worse than that because the League of Arab States was headquartered in Cairo. It took the League of Arab States out of Cairo and put it in Tunis. And so Tunisia had it for about 10 years. My wife was the desk officer for Egypt during most of those years. And I can recall when we would go to uh, embassy functions at the Embassy of Egypt, uh, we would look around and we, we would see the Israelis there. We would see the odd Omani, the odd Sudanese, the odd Moroccan, uh, but we saw no, no other Arabs for the better part of 10 years. Uh, we took an enormous hit when that happened, and the bill was something like $28 billion because all Arab countries cut Egypt off to the economic ankles uh, because of what it had done. Now, Sadat was then, and has remained in the rearview mirror since, uh, a hero to many people. He was larger than life. He was a visionary. He dealt with strategic issues in terms of war and peace and could defend him, his position locally by saying, no one has fought more for Palestine than we have and bled more and expended more of our treasury than we have. Two times our canal has been shut. The first time was six months. The second time the Israelis did it, it was eight years that it remained shut, okay? So I've given you example number two. Example number three and number four have not yet happened, but these are nightmares for people that deal with them. And one of them has to do with this body of waterway between Iran and Oman. Uh, lots of people think, well, Oman, that's the capital of Jordan, right? Now we're talking about a country called Oman, the capital of which is Muscat there. And it's about 22 miles across there. Most Americans, including myself at one time, thought, inferred, concluded, believed that all of the shipping into and out of the Gulf went through Iran's waters. Now, otherwise, why were we building up the Shah the way we did? There are eight countries in the Gulf, seven of them are Arab, only one is non-Arab, and that's Iran. So there must have been a reason why we were doing that, and it probably had to do with Iran's being right beside the Hormuz Strait. Little did I know then, what I have known now for some time, all of the shipping goes through Oman's waters, in and out, okay? There's a two-mile lane that brings the tankers and freighters 
uh, into the Gulf. There's a two-mile lane that takes them out of the Gulf, and there's a two-mile separation zone between the two for safety uh, purposes there. Uh, every now and then you find an Iranian leader, spokesperson, who says, if the West does this, if America does that, we will close the straits. And this sends prices up, insurance rates up, people's blood pressure up uh, instantly there. Uh, I don't believe the straits can be closed myself. And I'm in a distinct minority on that, but I'm trying to be literal and precise with my language here. Uh, it's about 600 feet deep, uh, the water there. And so you would probably have to take several hundred tankers and have a great parking attendant on the bottom of the ocean floor there to kind of get them to stack all up chest right so that no ships could come through there. So I don't think it's physically possible. It's psychologically possible, though, in the sense of anyone saying we really have done it and they've got great eye contact, good vocabulary, great body language, and measured cadence to their voice so that uh, like great actors and actresses, you find them persuasive there. If they say, we have done it, uh, would you go through and call the bluff? Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't. Uh, but would you do so without calling headquarters and asking uh, your boss, your supervisor, because you've got tens of millions of uh, assets under your control in such a big tanker, as well as the cargo there. And probably your boss would not say, go ahead. Or the boss would say, let me check first with Lloyds of London. And Lloyds of London is not by accident one of the wealthiest entities in the world uh, because they clean your clock whenever an Iranian says something like that. And they've said this more than a dozen times in the last 10 years. Uh, the Iranians also have their side, their coast, uh, at three different points, uh, strategic missile batteries that could fire on the shipping and they could uh, intimidate people from wanting to go through that way. Uh, so that's another big one because 25% of all of the world that's traded today internationally goes through that body of water. Okay. The fourth one is at the southern tip of the Red Sea. It's called, in English, the, the Gate of Tears. Uh, in Arabic, the Babel Mandab. And this one is actually more precarious than the one we just discussed, which is far better known. Through this one, about 30% of the uh, oil that's going to the west from Arabia and the Gulf is, will go through the Suez Canal onto Europe, southern Europe, across the Atlantic, et cetera. Uh, depending on where you start your measurements from the coast or the nearby islands, that one's only seven to nine miles across. Okay. Now, as to why that is strategically vital, we refer to a person, uh, an Israeli, charismatic, dashing Minister of Defense in June 67, and for some years later, uh, he wore an eye patch. Anyone remember his name? Moshe Dayan, right. He was something. Uh, and when people talked about uh, Israel having a strategic interest in peace with Egypt, he would often fire back and say, wait a minute, uh, we're at Sharm el-Sheikh, we have the entire Sinai Peninsula, 
Uh, we can control, protect our destiny with regard to South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Africa, with which we've got a booming trade. If it's a choice between peace with Egypt or our keeping Sharm el-Sheikh, I'll keep Sharm el-Sheikh any day. And then something came along called October 1973, where the Egyptian armed forces crossed the canal. They encircled the Israelis in Egypt, and a guy by the name of Richard Milhouse Nixon went to the Congress and asked for $2.5 billion in emergency aid for the United States taxpayers to give to Israel, even though it was still in the illegal occupation of Egypt and the Congress uh, obeyed. Doing that started Saudi Arabia's participation in the Arab oil embargo of the United States and Great Britain in 1973. Most people, you read it, you hear it, say that Saudi Arabia was responsible for the oil embargo. It was not. It was the last of the oil producers to come in. And if what I just said is true, why is it that you're hearing it for the first time here? It's because of a promise between Saudi Arabia's King Faisal and President Nixon. It's the same exact promise that Roosevelt made to King Abdulaziz Ibn Saud on February 14, 1945. And that was, I will not do anything to tilt the balance the strategic balance of power one way or the other without consulting you first. And both Saudi Arabia and King said, I, I can't ask for more than that. They held up their side of the bargain. Roosevelt held up his side. It was Truman that broke it, okay? 1947-48, we can discuss that in the Q&A. Uh, and when Nixon went to the Congress, it was Nixon that broke it. It was then that Saudi Arabia came in to the embargo. It was the last in. Everybody else were, were taunting Saudi Arabia. What are you, America's Arabs? You're a lackey, a running dog, et cetera. Uh, but that's why Saudi Arabia held out, because it kept its word to the United States, as it did uh, before as well. But when it did come in, being the single largest producers, it took 550,000 barrels a day off the international market, and that did indeed spike the price uh, going upwards. So that's another example for you. But with regard to Moshe Dayan, in October 73, what the Egyptians announced to the world, we don't have a map here, but any ship, pardon? Oh, you do, okay. Look, look at Egypt's southern border there, and then look laterally, left and right, to the latitude where that border is. And Egypt said any ship entering the Red Sea going north of that latitude will be entering a war zone. And because most of the ships that go into the Red Sea are bound for the Suez Canal and the Mediterranean and beyond, none did. And so this pulled the rug out from Moshe Dion's strategic thinking. Fast forward, this is why Eritrea is not a member of the League of Arab States. Eritrea is right down by the Babel Mandeb. Eritrea has 365 islands, and the Israelis are on several of them in order to protect and protect their interests far to the south, okay? So these are about five that would trigger 
of, of war within 24 hours. Uh, so we have a feeling of people working to see that that doesn't happen. The second set of interests used to be linked up with more things. Now it is simply economic interest. And economic interest narrowly defined, very precisely, specificity of detail, the sheer economic interest of access to the region's hydrocarbon fuels, their energy resources, their oil and gas. Simple access, not a question of production, not a question of pricing. Simple access, just as a, a druggie or an addict uh, has to have the heroin or the opium or whatever it is, regardless of the price, this is the same reality here. We can come back to this because I don't want to, to leave you with the implication that I agree with the last four State of the Union addresses where uh, President Bush before and President Obama has looked into the cameras and said we, we need to end our reliance on foreign oil. Uh, no one in the region is uh, naive that the word foreign means Arab and Muslim. Okay? Not that uh, Americans need to stop driving or idling at the intersection, but just don't drive or idle at the intersection on Arab and Islamic oil. This is um, irresponsible. It's pandering. It's playing to the galleries. It's um, reflective of uh, presidential timidity in the face of the facts. We can talk about these. Okay? But sheer access to it will come to what used to be linked and lumped with it. The third one is a set of political interest. Uh, but in terms of the ground rules and the understanding, foreign political interests, foreign policies, foreign positions, foreign actions, foreign attitudes, not domestic. Uh, because here's where the golden rule comes in. Uh, do not do unto others that which you would not have others do unto you. Okay. And so if we insist and persist in interfering in other people's domestic affairs, we have no shield. We're completely exposed and vulnerable and guilty of providing the rationale, the stimulus, the incentive, the motive for others to do the same thing here. Okay. This is not to say that we don't do it. No one can say we don't do it because we do do it. But largely, it's, it's a unilateral one-way street, largely, okay? not completely. In this regard, the key strategic objective of almost all Arabs and Muslims, when you see them in summits and their communiques afterwards, that principle that I just mentioned is, before any others, non-interference in our domestic affairs, or the domestic affairs of others there. Okay. That's the third one. The first two, we were doing reasonably well and successfully up until the administration of George W. Bush, uh, where we got into two wars and uh, came close to others. The fourth category of interest is a set of commercial interests. And these used to be linked with the economic ones. And the commercial interests in, include business, trade, finance, investment, and the establishment of joint commercial ventures. One block from here is the 
U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has uh, thousands, tens of thousands of American businesses as members. Uh, but thousands of them have joint ventures with uh, companies in the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. And so they, they focus on those issues there as well. And the commercial one has come to be, I, I sit on three advisory committees in the Department of State. Uh, one is the International Economic uh, Policy Committee, which we met last week. Another one is the Trade and Investment Committee, we met last week. And the third one has to do with the sanctions, primarily towards Iran, but also towards the Congo, Cuba, and elsewhere uh, there. But it has been the mantra of this administration that before the end of 2012, the administration wants to double the level of America's exports to the rest of the world uh, during his first term in order to create the jobs, further stimulus, and, and uh, revitalize our economy there. It's a stretch to see if we can do that, but that's, that's the mission. And so the co commercial part has that uh, to do with it, but also to lower the price tag of that economic interest. Right? As we're importing more and more, we're the world's single largest users of oil, single largest importers of oil, single biggest wasters of oil, and single loudest crybabies about it uh, because most other countries would trade places with us in a millisecond. Here, it does cost $4 something. Uh, but tonight, if we went to Amsterdam or Rotterdam or Tokyo, it'd be closer to $11, $12, okay? And ask ourselves, why is it that they don't have the mean and nasty debate that we have when they're far more dependent upon it than we are. And the answer is largely political, and it has a lot to do with information and facts and realities, okay? Uh, but this is an additional reason why we need to export as much as we can of our goods and services in order to lower that particular bill, because we're facing an August the 2nd deadline uh, where it's possible that we may default, uh, which would be quite something, uh, be uh, earthquake-like. That's the fourth one. The fifth one, and you want, may wonder, well, why hasn't he got to this one yet, is a set of defense cooperation interest. I confess that there was a time in my life when I would have thought that they were way up there. But no, according to those with whom I meet and who we pay to look out for our interests, that's where it is, fifth. Uh, during the previous administration, you would have had reason to believe it came up around two or three. Uh, as to why it has largely been number five since the 60s, it has to do with a metaphor or an analogy of a person who used to be the head of the AFL-CIO, and his name was George, George Meany. And I remember watching him in some press conferences, and hotheads would stand up and shake their fist at him, and, say, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. You've never been on strike a day in your life. And he said, that's right, I haven't. Never one day have I been on strike, and I'm proud of it. And you should be proud that I never have. Because if we go on strike, that's the only weapon we have. And our bank accounts are not bottomless there. And once we use that weapon, uh, we're pretty much finished. 
and, and our goal is to have better working conditions and wages and relations with our employers and our working environment. So that's why I have never gone on strike, okay? We do not want to use it. I'm a former soldier, as my, most of my family is as well, or has been, and um, I have been struck by the degree to which our senior military commanders are almost all peaceniks. They, they do not want to go to war. There is an image, a stereotype, and there are exceptions to what I just said, but exceptions are just that, exceptions and aberrations. Um, but if you've ever had to speak to a widow or to an orphan in terms of what happened to their parent in a war, you don't want to do it a second time. So there's this aspect, a psychological, a moral, and ethical principle there amongst most of our senior leaders that I've met and know, and I've been a consultant for DOD since 1974, sort of nonstop. So that's why it's there. Now what does it mean, or how do we define defense cooperation? It consists of the following, agreements, uh, about what we would do together if something happens, the balloon goes up, chicken little falls from the sky. Uh, understandings, facilities, access to facilities, pre-positioned equipment, because we, amongst the great powers, are the furthest one away of all. And it's kind of difficult to fly heavy tanks on airplanes. And so it takes us longer to get there than anybody else amongst the big powers. Therefore, the more that we can have preposition already in place, the better in terms of our decisiveness, our dispatch, our effectiveness, our operational effectiveness, our logistical effectiveness, etc. It also has to do with training. There is a small budget in the Department of Defense, and Congress approves it, called the International Military Education and Training, where we bring new and older and middle-level offices to the United States to train with us. And when you train together, when you bivouac together, you sleep together, you maneuver together, um, barriers of misunderstanding and mistrust tend to melt. And uh, the we-they tends to fade and the, and the us uh, aspect comes forward, which is an important attribute that can't be manufactured there. Uh, so those are the defense cooperation ones. Now, why hasn't he gotten to talk about democracy? Why well, haven't gotten to talk about human rights and civil rights and gender rights and civil society and non-governmental organizations and popular participation in the political processes and pluralistic political systems? It's because that's where it is on the scale of those interests. Uh, it's the one that's the most emotional. As I said, it's psychologically indulgible, uh, but over and over again proven to be politically expendable. That same week of 1956 in the autumn when the Israelis, the French, and the British invaded Egypt, something else happened in Europe. The Soviet Union rolled its tanks into downtown Budapest. Even though we had been encouraging the Hungarians to rise up, we will be there with you. We'll stand by you. It's happened over and over and over again. When Mr. Dubacek did the same thing in 1968 in Prague, uh, when Mr. Lech Walesa did the same thing in Poland. And here next door, right 90 miles off of Florida, is Cuba for more than 40 years and counting there. And so we, we talk about this a lot, uh, but we don't, or we seldom mobilize and deploy. Uh, these are our six interests. 
there. And now in terms of the implications for American policies and our foreign policy objectives, they include um, the following. On the economic one, let's say we're the number one in four categories, use, importing, wasting, and complaining on energy. Ponder, ponder the following. In the 1990s, the production of oil in the United States was just about the exact same level as the production of oil in Saudi Arabia. Seven and a half million barrels a day. For us to get our seven and a half million barrels a day, it's, it's taken us 650,000 wells, all of them driven by a pump, which is an extra energy cost, steel, lubricants, iron. For us to get seven and a half million barrels a day, it took us 650,000 wells. For Saudi Arabia to get seven and a half million barrels a day, took them fewer than 900 wells. The average production of an American well is 14 barrels a day. The average production of a Saudi Arabian well is 12,000 barrels a day. Kuwait's 12,000 barrels a day. Abu Dhabi's 12,000 barrels a day, and no pumps. Okay, theirs all comes out of the ground naturally by the pressure from below. So when we find it, which is seldom, our challenge is to get it out of the ground. When they find it, which is frequently, that challenge is to keep it in the ground. Saudi Arabia has 81 oil fields. It's never used more than 21 of the 81. It has 60 back there in the closet, in the hangar, and there. One of Saudi Arabia's oil fields has more oil in it than all the oil in the United States, Canada, and Europe combined. Its second biggest oil field has half as much as all the oil in the United States, Canada, and Europe combined. These are facts, geological facts, not political ones, geological ones. But they have their own implications and facts being stubborn things. Now, oil also is a finite depletable commodity. It's not the grass that will be cut someplace this weekend, or was cut this last weekend that comes back year after year. Each drop that goes never returns there. And yet this is a vital interest. That is to say, after the air we're breathing now, the liquids we've been ingesting or imbibing for reasons of being hydrated and the food we have to be healthy, uh, the next most vital world commodity is energy. All economies run on energy, rich, poor, new, old, big, small, and everything in between. And coming back to my saying it's a finite commodity, we have only two and a half percent of the world's supply of this. Saudi Arabia has more than 25% of it, 10 times as much as we have. Kuwait has another 10%. Iraq has another 10%. Iran has another 10%. The UAE has another 10%. So 60 to 65% of it all is in this region that you're focusing on in this seminar here. Now ask yourself, from a strategic perspective, for something that's finite. Let's just take, by the way, the energy is what is cooling the air in this room. And it warms it up in the winter. And it is the energy also that made this plastic bottle and the plastic cup here. 
And it is the energy that went into the nutrients and the pesticides to raise the food and to power the trucks and to power the, uh, the mills uh, that made the bread and took it to the markets, et cetera. So it's, it's got multifaceted uses there. We're the only people in the world as a government, as a matter of policy, that badmouth this reality there when we are the single largest beneficiaries of it, of any people on the planet. The America's standard of living nonstop since World War II has been based on cheap energy. Okay. Now, if we want to end the reliance on it, uh, we can pay $12 a, ga a, a gallon there, because this is the implication of that as such. And if something is finite, ask yourself the question, would you rather use mainly and only your own or somebody else's if they've got a surplus of it and they're willing to part with it? You want to use your own and no one else's? Ponder the implications of that in terms of our children and those who will come after us. Um, and then we come to the goodwill and the reputation of America in the region. We talk about the rule of law. Automatically it works its way into speeches. We are a member of the United Nations by treaty with the full advice and consent of the United States Congress. Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution posits the following, that all international conventions and treaties and laws to which the United States is a sovereign signatory shall be superior to federally enacted legislation. Okay, so we're in this highest world political body by treaty and by Congress by law in accordance with our Constitution. But in the Constitution, it says that members of the United Nations must meet three criteria. They must be nationally sovereign, politically independent, and that territory must be intact. In the case of our invasion of Iraq, which had not attacked us, we took all three of those and smashed them to smithereens. If you look at the, our own Constitution, the purposes for which we exist as a government, there are four that override all the others. One is the promotion and protection of the domestic safety. The second is the promotion and protection of the external defense. And the third has to do with the well-being or the material well-being or the standard of living uh, to be enhanced and protected, secured. And the fourth is the administration of a civil and effective system of justice, without which we'd all be packing heat, okay? We took all four of those in the case of Iraq and smashed them to smithereens, okay? All seven. So this is how we are seen through the lens of others who we affect, uh, who would have us do nothing more than more nearly resemble that who we say we are, have been, and aspired to be. Uh, there are many other examples I could give you, but let, let me stop on that one, and I don't know if we have any time for questions. I'll take some if you want. Yes, right here. One of the most important laws that we 
got the rest of the world to uh, adhere to was in 1949 after the Nuremberg trials when the Holocaust wounds were so recent and raw. And it was the fourth Geneva Convention. Uh, the Israelis, only then one year old, and ourselves were the ones that led, cajoled, and connived and contrived to get the rest of the world to sign on, and they did. But the Fourth Geneva Convention couldn't be any clearer in terms of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It prohibits the occupying power from expropriating the occupied people's land. It prohibits the occupying power from exploiting the occupied people's natural resources, their water, their vineyards. It prohibits the occupying power from settling its people on the land of the occupied people. It prohibits the occupying power from expelling the occupied peoples from that land. So um, we are seen as the number one violator of this in terms of duplicity. The Israelis, the most number one violator uh, directly on this. The Palestinians are now down to 22% of their land officially, but the Israelis have taken 40% of that by building the wall substantially on additional land-grabbed Palestinian territory. So the Palestinians, if they're lucky, uh, would get away with 12% of what they had uh, less than 100 years ago. If you want to know where the center of gravity is on this issue, it has to do with 47 and 48, going back to Truman, uh, because he violated Roosevelt's promise. And in, he knew what he was doing. He called all of the American ambassadors back to Washington to tell them face to face. And he said, um, as all of you know, I'm running for the highest office in the land. And as such, I'm anxious for the success of political Zionism. I have no Arabs among my constituents, I'm sorry. Yeah. So he did this as a desperate ploy. Uh, and it was touch and go right down to the election night even the Chicago Tribune the next day had a big headline, Dewey wins, Governor Dewey of, of Ohio. Um, but what did we do then that has cost us dearly ever since? Even Israeli scholars do not claim that Jews occupied more than 40% of the land of Palestine. Most settled on 30%, and yet we insisted on giving them 54%, okay? So the 60% or the 70% were knocked down to 46%. That's cardinal sin number one. Actually, cardinal sin number two. Cardinal sin number one was the following. Who owned the land? 94. 4% of the land was owned by Palestinian Arabs and Christians. Only 6.6% of the land was owned by Jews. But we gave the 6% 54%. And it's been cover up, rationale, ex excuses uh, ever since. Uh, it's of some interest that America's then Secretary of State, George Catlett Marshall, told Truman to his face, if you insist on doing this, we will pay the price for generations yet to come. And I myself will vote against you in November. 
The same thing was said by Robert Lovett, the Under Secretary of State. Same thing by Lloyd Henderson, the Assistant Secretary of State. Same thing by James Forrestal, Secretary of the Navy. And the same thing by Warren Austin, our ambassador to the UN. I've spoken frankly and candidly and as truthfully as I can. What questions do you have? Yes, ma'am. Yes. What would you suggest should be should be a reprioritization of American interests, or what steps would you recommend we take given the events of this week? Thank you. What steps would I recommend? Have these kinds of seminars all over the United States. I mean, you you have a trust for the young people in your midst, not to them only directly, but to their parents and to your communities, your school board, your superintendents and your social studies supervisors, uh, to not uh, be the echo chamber of that which we read and hear uh, that is highly covered by partisanship, by interests of another kind, selfish interests, personal interests, lobbies interests, uh, but to get to the, the heart of what is really at stake, uh, what we're doing well, what we are not doing at all, what we're doing poorly, and what we can do better. Uh, I, I know of no better antidote than education over time. And, and you, you are sitting right at the intersection of this. You can drive in reverse, uh, you can idle, or you can uh, go forward with the kinds of information and insight enhanced knowledge and understanding that you will derive from this seminar that Ms. Shoup has, has organized for you. Um, there are amongst your students those who are gifted, brighter, and energetic, and there are those who've had a difficult time and all they need is, is a spark and an opportunity. There are thousands of interns here this summer, uh, almost all of them working for nothing. Uh, you can say, well, they're exploited, they are, uh, they are provided an opportunity to navigate the nation's capital, uh, to learn habits of personal and organizational discipline and teamwork. Uh, they have their minds stretched. I'm impressed by the late Oliver Wendell Holmes phrase that a mind once stretched never reverts to its original position uh, there. And so you, you're working encyclopedias, frames of reference. You're librarians in addition to being teachers. Uh, in terms of putting in their hands uh, more factual material and letting them know of various opportunities uh, that exist. Uh, the one program that we have, it's our cheapest one and it's our biggest one. We put 30,000 uh, pre-collegiate students through it uh, over the last 30 years. It's called the Model Arab League. It's just like the Model United Nations. Anybody participate in that one? Several, I mean, you know what it does to uh, young woman or man in terms of being able to debate in 30 seconds, one minute, three minutes, five minutes. No one gets to speak longer than five minutes, uh, an exception here. Um, <laughs> you, you get to learn um, that out of town grown up language uh, called parliamentary procedure. I don't know it, but if you want to be in public affairs, uh, you, you have no choice but to learn it, et cetera. 
and uh, how to work in committees. Most public policy work is done in committees. How to be a rapporteur, a rapporteur, <coughs> in terms of listening carefully and copious notes there. And building a coalition, no matter how well you prepare, if you don't have supporters, you'll get nowhere. Uh, so that particular program, the Model United Nations and the Model League of Arab States, uh, teaches all of those skills under the supervision of people like yourself. We're in the shadows looking for the best ones to encourage them and to um, provide them a, another opportunity if they do well and if they're sincere. Yes, ma'am. We have 32 students here for 10 weeks uh, in Washington from all over the United States, all over the world, and they have participated in this program, and that's how they got here. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. Yes, um, the question is about uh, where would one guide the students to the uh, literature that would help them go beyond the stereotyping in the mass media or the mainstream media. Um, I don't know whether Ms. Shoup has a, a list of follow-up materials or follow-up organizations, um, but if that isn't one, um, they're easily obtained. And if any of you want to give me your card, I will assist in putting you in touch with uh, uh, journals, periodicals, specialized uh, reports uh, that are laced with integrity and courage, and uh, simply because they're not echo chambers of the mainstream. That bothers uh, a lot of people as a sheep-like or herd-like aspect to that kind of re response. In fact, we had one of the most influential books I've ever read before I became a full adult was called A Nation of Sheep. And it was about two former Foreign Service officers who uh, took early retirement because they said, we, we're at risk of losing our moral compass. We can't sit around at the dinner table and talk with their children and, and answer their questions truthfully because we're paid to answer them in terms of our policies. So um, there is this herd instinct, but it can be circumvented, or it can be undermined, it can be surmounted uh, there through different kinds of, of literature. And I'd be happy to work with Ms. Shoup, uh, with any of you that have that as a need uh, to try to meet that need. Yes, ma'am. Did you hear over here the question? Yes. Um, I don't think we could go wrong by uh, meaning what we say and saying what we mean. And so if we say we respect only those who uh, adhere to the rule of law, uh, then we need to have some mirrors uh, to hand and to look into it to say, well, what about ourselves? 
uh, if to lead by example. Uh, get, we are seen as the most anti-democratic member of the United Nations, and we are. The United Nations Security Council's got 15 members, five of them have a veto, and we have thwarted, aborted the democratic procedure process endgame more than all of the other members of the United Nations combined multiplied by four. I mean, them's the numbers. We never used the veto once until 1970. We've used it more than 75 times since then. And more than 40 of the 75 times, it has to prevent the law from being applied as it pertains to Israel. Even resolutions in the UN Security Council that we voted for, for example, when the Israelis invaded Lebanon in June of 1982 and broke this, the 11-month-old ceasefire that we had negotiated with Israel, with the PLO, with Lebanon, and we voted to condemn what Israel did, for 19 years we prevented the resolution from being applied to Israel. They stayed there for 19 years. During the time, they doubled, trebled, quadrupled, quintupled the settlements, uh, which was part of the design to change the agenda, to change the focus. Uh, we were on a roll and a run before that happened with regard to Camp David and getting the Egyptians to withdraw from the Sinai. And we were so much on a roll and a run that we let the Israelis know that now we're going to work on Jerusalem, West Bank, and Gaza. And uh, their response was, no, you're not. And we thought, well, that's a bit cheeky in as much as we provide you with $150 a second, $6,667 a minute, $336,000 an hour, and $10 million a day. Uh, but they said, uh, read it and weep. And this was in January of 82, and I was in a meeting uh, where this exchange took place. And the rest of us thought, well, do they mean it? And the consensus was, yes, they do. They're going to do it sometime between April of uh, 82 and the middle of June of 82. And sure enough, they did, the first week of June. And that changed the agenda completely. No one after that, for the longest time, uh, focused on Jerusalem, the West Bank, and Gaza. So it worked. And nothing succeeds like success. For the last five or more years, the Israeli ploy has been to get us to attack, invade Iran, which would change the searchlight altogether again, way to the east, and embroil Iranians and Arabs together while at the eastern Mediterranean, uh, the Israeli strategic objective uh, would prevail. Uh, the continuation of this cannot be helpful to Israelis. I mean, here we are 62 years down the road, and there's still anti-Semitism. There's still reasons for many Israelis to feel paranoid. In most years, I don't have the exact figures for this year and last year, more Israelis leave Israel than go to Israel because of the psychological stress and a hell of a place to raise a family and the constancy of not being at peace with your neighbors there. Uh, so it's in Israel's interest. Uh, 
uh, they, all 22 Arab countries, March the 31st, 2002 in Beirut, offered to have normalized relations with Israel if it would but only live up to its own pledge in terms of the United Nations in Resolution 242 and 338. In the first paragraph, it reiterates the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force. So we're only asking them to live up to what they've already pledged to do, uh, nothing more. And really, in terms of Israel's interest and the interest of uh, Jews worldwide, um, easy to say that, it's proved to be profoundly elusive in terms of implementing that. We have re-election campaigns. Uh, we'll shortly be into an even-numbered year where emotionality goes to the front and rationality goes to the back. I've taken more than 225 members of Congress and their chiefs of staff, defense and foreign policy advisors to the region, and the stories that they fill my ears with in terms of the threats and the intimidations on this issue, uh, unbelievable. And many of them said if we could only vote by secret ballot, uh, this would have been over a long time ago. It takes a million dollars, $3 million, $3,000 a day in terms of contributions for every member of the House of Representatives to run for election, be reelected. Um, and the people writing out those checks are not ordinarily the sister of Mother Teresa or the nephew of Nelson Mandela. Each one has got an interest. I've got my checkbook with me, but I need to know your stand on Jerusalem. I need to know your stand on the settlements. I need to know your stand on Hamas. I need to know your stand on Hezbollah, et cetera. I've got my check with me. Yeah. It's pretty powerful. So we, we do have an abiding, overarching need for campaign finance reform. And we had some modest efforts at it 10, 15 years ago, but uh, they've been erased now with the Supreme Court's decision of Citizens United. Yeah. Am I taking somebody else's time? We could have one more question. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Yes, did everyone hear her question? Yes, yes. Um, there is a, a massive asymmetry in terms of organization uh, to work on making our society a better society, our country a better country. There are 212 organizations in the United States uh, that have uh, U.S.-Israeli relations as their preferred pet international project. There's only one Israel. There are 22 Arab countries, 380 million people, thereabouts. Uh, 57 Islamic countries, 1.5 billion Muslims. Um, and so the, the view is that one cannot continue to alienate 
you know, have a hostile relationship with 1.5 billion people simply because you are rewarding and benefiting from supporting 5 million people. So for the organizations in America that work on trying to strengthen, expand, improve Arab-U.S. relations, there are about eight. Uh, if you add those working with the Islamic world, uh, add another 10. So altogether, the 1.5 billion are represented organizationally, programs, projects, events, activities, education, uh, by fewer than 20 organizations. And one is represented uh, by 212 organizations. Uh, so it's grossly imbalanced. That's part of it. And then there is the aspect of individuals cowering if they are called anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, or that you're delegitimizing Israel. Uh, most people can't take it. They can't. Um, and if it's on a phone call or a whisper campaign or in a debate, they wilt. Uh, this is unfortunate that um, we don't have the backbone and the courage and the conviction of our convictions uh, to do the right thing at the right time and the right way for the right reasons and the right people. Um, so there's that aspect of it. And this has been a train that's rolling for a long time, more than a century. And it is true that the Palestinians themselves have uh, not done well or enough or been adequate or competent to address their needs. But I would suggest there is a reason that's often overlooked. And that is before we did what we did in 1947 and 48, we were batting a thousand to use baseball terms. In 1945, when the United Nations was being founded in San Francisco, the French bombed Damascus Parliament. We read the French the Riot Act and they stopped. In 1946, when the UN was up and running, the oldest case, the first case of the UN, is the one having to do with Iran, where the Soviet Union in World War II occupied northern Iran, the British occupied southern Iran. Uh, the British left at the end of World War II, the Russians stayed, and they were trying to manipulate the parliament in Iran to get an oil concession. Uh, the United States threatened Stalin that we will send the troops back to the Gulf if you do not get out. And the Soviets, having lost 20 million in World War II, did not call America's bluff. They got out. That's two. Number three was what became Indonesia, West Syrian. Uh, the Dutch wanted to hold on to it. and. Uh, we read the Riot Act to the Dutch. No, these people deserve their freedom and their liberty, and we're going to stand by them. So we, we did three out of three, and it was the fourth one where everyone had reason to believe we would continue doing it, that we would do the right thing and not the wrong thing with regard to Palestine. So the blow was the greater because uh, uh, people believed that we wouldn't ever do something like that. Uh, how could we do something like that? But we did do something like that. Yeah. That's my answer. All right. Okay.